I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 19th, 2013. Coming up, what's the matter with dark matter? We talk with Dr. Martin Huber to find out. And does the Earth have a big bullseye painted on it waiting for asteroids to hit us? Dr. Clark Chapman talks about impact hazards and last week's Russian meteor event. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Biofuels are supposed to be kinder to the environment than fossil fuels, but in the Western Corn Belt, growing biofuels is causing a new problem, the destruction of native prairie grass. Less than 200 years ago, prairies covered the central U.S., including the Corn Belt states from Nebraska up to North Dakota, plus Iowa and Minnesota. Much of the prairie was plowed under to make way for fields of corn and soy, but marginal lands protected prairie remnants because it was too challenging and too expensive to farm them. Not anymore. South Dakota State researchers Christopher Wright and Michael Wimberly use land cover data from 2006 and 2011 to analyze grassland conversion across the western corn belt. In the five years they have been analyzing, the authors found that grasslands have declined by over 1.3 million acres, primarily in Nebraska and the Dakotas. And this is not only destroying remnants of native prairie, it's meant that plowing is taking place on marginal lands with high potential for erosion and drought. To make matters worse, the conversions have often occurred near wetlands, posing a threat to waterfowl breeding habitats. The authors warn that this new farming within marginal areas may ultimately hurt the region's land productivity, carbon sequestration, biodiversity, flood risk, and vulnerability to drought. The study was published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. An international team led by the University of Adelaide Center for Ancient DNA reports that it's not failing to floss that leads to cavities. Instead, we probably have more tooth decay and gum disease because, compared to our Stone Age ancestors, the foods we eat produce less diverse community of bacteria in our mouths. The researchers researched these conclusions based on bacterial DNA preserved in the tartar of 34 prehistoric northern European human skeletons, ranging from the last hunter-gatherers through the first farmers to the Bronze Age and medieval times, plus some modern skeletons. Their analysis of the bacterial DNA in the tartar indicates that the composition of oral bacteria changed markedly with the introduction of farming, and again around 150 years ago when the Industrial Revolution made processed flour and sugar commonplace. Over thousands of years, with each step closer to modern foods, the microbial communities in the mouth have become less diverse. Especially with the switch to more sugar and flour, the species that thrive in our mouths is more cavity-causing. This means that compared to our Paleolithic ancestors who, obviously, ate a Paleolithic diet, the foods most people eat today aren't very good for our teeth. Quoting the researchers, the modern mouth basically exists in a permanent disease state. This study was published this week in Nature Genetics.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Just a few days ago, an asteroid called 2012 DA14 had a close flyby with the Earth, closer than some satellites. Coincidentally, on the same day, a large meteor broke up in the skies over Russia, creating an air blast and sonic boom, which caused damage to buildings that injured over 1,000 people. We have in the studio today Dr. Clark Chapman to explain why the universe is taking pot shots at us. Dr. Chapman is an astronomer and senior scientist at the Boulder office of the Southwest Research Institute. He trained at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is recognized as a leading researcher in planetary cratering and in the physical properties asteroids, comets, and moons have. He's been a science team member on numerous space missions and has written papers on nearly every planet in the solar system. Particularly relevant to the topic at hand, for more than a decade, Dr. Chapman has been studying the risks of comets and asteroids hitting the Earth and has been a member of congressional and international committees regarding impact hazards. He's also a founder of B612, the private company formed to launch a spacecraft to detect dangerous objects in space. Welcome to How on Earth, Clark. Good morning. Uh, now, was this a comet or an asteroid uh, that uh, grazed Russia? Well, we're not really totally sure what it is yet. It's very uh, recent, and a lot of the data have yet to be determined, but it appears from the flight path of this body that it was uh, an asteroid, uh, an asteroid about 15 or 20 meters across, kind of the size of a of a house. <laughs> That's pretty big, uh, the size of a house. It's the biggest thing that has struck the Earth, we believe, uh, in the last century. Since uh, in 1908, there was something about 10 times bigger in terms of energy uh, that struck also in Siberia. Uh, But this is a really unusual blast and uh, particularly amazing that it happened near a city of about a million people. You know, the Internet is just flooded with videos of this thing. Utterly fascinating that uh, there are so many cameras on cars. That's what I found to be so fascinating that there were so many cameras. uh, But the videos show doors being blown down and all sorts of other things, uh, including, I think, some fake videos of uh, impact craters on fire. What what, but what was the damage and what what caused it and what caused the injuries? Well, this object came into the Earth's atmosphere at enormous speed of, uh, I guess it's like 40,000 miles per hour. It's uh, really a very rapid uh, impact with the Earth's atmosphere. It came in at a rather low angle, shallow angle, so it was passing across a rather lengthy part of, of, of Russia. But uh, in, in just a matter of some seconds, uh, when it gets down into the lower atmosphere, it, uh, it runs into the air uh, at such a rapid rate, it's like uh, uh, running into a wall, basically, and it exploded. Now, as it was traveling it, through the atmosphere, it generated a shock wave, uh, kind of what you hear, these sonic booms from jet airplanes that rattled your windows. Well, this... Uh, not only rattled windows, it broke windows and buildings throughout the area. What was the distance of closest approach to the Earth's surface? Do we, do we know how close it got? Well, it hit the ground. Oh, it did, oh, it did hit the ground. Okay. It did hit <laughs> well, the it, ground. Well, it, it blew up in the atmosphere, but the fragments have been rained down on the ground, and people have been picking up meteorites. Okay. Well, I need to get back on YouTube. <laughs> 
Now, how could it have been a, a grazing orbit that could have skipped off the atmosphere? And if it had been a little bit more steeply pitched, uh, would the damage have been worse or would the damage have been uh, not so bad? There was an event uh, near Yellowstone Park, uh, maybe the Grand Teton Park back in the 70s when a, a similar uh, a body came through and actually did skip out of the atmosphere. And there's a video from back in the 70s of that event. Had this one come in at a steeper angle, it probably would have generated greater damage right below it, but it wouldn't have been such a large area. Right. Well, what do we know about this meteor? There are different kinds of meteors. Uh, is this a meteor from Mars? Well, it's not too likely. Our, most meteorites are not uh, are not from Mars, although a few are. Uh, it's very early, and I've not heard of any real scientific interpretations of the composition of these meteorites, uh, but they're magnetic, and I, I've heard it speculate, speculated that this was an or, so-called ordinary chondrite, which is the most common meteorite that's found on, on Earth, and you can see them in uh, geology museums. Yeah, well, probably uh, around here we've got a great uh, collection, I think, at the University of Colorado, that sort of thing. But uh, you mentioned an earlier event in the ni early 1900s, the Tunguska event. Uh, tell us about the Tunguska event, and uh, was this uh, anything comparable to that event? Tunguska is a unpopulated area of Siberia, and uh, in June of 1908, there was an explosion of several megatons. That's like a, a, a small nuclear weapon that uh, that blew up and blew down forests over the, an area the size of a major metropolitan area, uh, but there were very few people in the area, and it's not clear even if anyone was killed. One, one man was reportedly blown off his chair that he was sitting on. But it was definitely a meteor and not a spacecraft. Uh, anyway, well, we don't, have to, we don't have to talk about that. There have been three major meteor impacts in Russia over the last century. Why? Why Russia? Well, Russia is big. <laughs> that's, that's one reason. Um, the, uh, yeah, Sakodi Aline happened in 1947, also in Siberia. Uh, Siberia has an area of 13 million square kilometers, and that's bigger than China or Canada or Brazil. Uh, but I still think that Siberia has been a bit unlucky in the last century. Why, why didn't we see this meteor coming? It was, a, it was a shocker. Our eyes were focused on something else. From the perspective of astronomers, this was really a very small body. We have telescopes searching for things that are larger than, say, half a mile across. Um, but while they find some smaller ones, uh, it's very rare to find ones that are this small. And so, um, you, you, I mean, it's possible to... to organize a search uh, in a different way, and there are proposals to do so. So maybe in the future we will see things like this coming. But uh, Yeah. Well, you know, I understand you work uh, on, for B612. What, what are you folks doing to detect these asteroids, and, and how can we protect ourselves from asteroid impacts? Well, the B612 Foundation uh, has, a, has a, a project in mind to uh, put a spacecraft uh, in an orbit kind of like that of the planet Venus and look outwards from the sun and find smaller asteroids, things uh, maybe bigger than one that hit in Russia, but kind of like DA-14 that came by on the, on the same day uh, that could be extraordinarily damaging if it hit. And uh, the, the foundation is in the process of raising money 
which you can uh, donate yourself if you want by going to b612foundation.org. That sounds good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Clark Chapman from the Boulder Office of the Southwest Research Institute, talking about impact hazards and the meteor that caused damage in Russia last week. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. From bright meteors now to darker matters, or specifically dark matter. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you even know there is something everywhere throughout the universe. But for such ubiquitous material, what do you really know about dark matter? If the answer is not much, don't worry. You're in pretty good company. Many scientists would say the same thing. But you're in luck. Because at tonight's Café Scientifique in Denver, the topic of discussion is closing in on dark matter. If it's everywhere, why haven't we found it yet? The presenter at the Café Sci is Dr. Martin Huber, professor of physics and director of the Master of Integrated Sciences program at the University of Colorado, Denver. Dr. Huber trained at MIT and Stanford and has worked at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder. We are happy to have Dr. Huber in the studio with us this morning to talk about the dark matters of dark matter. Welcome to How on Earth, Martin. Thank you. So before we talk about what is dark matter, can you first explain how do we know it's there? There's actually a number of pieces of evidence that uh, we have. Uh, there are uh, lots of gravitational effects, uh, looking at uh, galaxies and the rotation rate of the stars. Uh, basically, it's too, they're too fat, moving too fast to be accounted for by the visible matter. You can extend this to clusters of galaxies. And there's also evidence uh, now we have from the Hubble Telescope deep field views of gravitational lensing, uh, which is the distortion of uh, star images uh, based on matter we can't see. So another indication of dark matter. Uh, moreover, there's a lot of evidence from the cosmological point of view in terms of the large-scale structure of the universe and um, the uh, different distribution of uh, elements that uh, could not have been form the way they were unless there was dark matter in the early universe. So the original motivation was gravitational effects. That's right. This was first Something was affecting things and we couldn't see what it was. It was uh, measure, uh, first seen in, uh, in the 1930s, actually, from very early um, measurements. And then in the uh, 70s, uh, another astronomer made a great big catalog of lots and lots of different galaxies, and they, all of them showed the same effect. And Vera Rubin That's had right. done rotational curves of galaxies. That's the uh, database that I, I mentioned, yes. Right. So we knew something was out there, but we couldn't see it. How much of the universe did it seem to take up? There's the part of the universe that we see. That's right. Um, one of the uh, nice analogies is uh, that everybody is familiar with, I think, is the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill. And that the uh, the part of the pyramid that has the eye in it is sort of the uh, all the, the matter that is in us and in um, planets and stars, and then the base of the pyramid is basically all the interstellar gas. And then what you don't see is underneath of that pyramid is this huge structure uh, that is the dark matter um, that forms uh, roughly. Uh, 
seven times that what we see and then the dark energy which is uh, even greater so it's like an iceberg we've only seen the tip of it that's right so you've really kicked us out of being from the earth was the center of the universe to our galaxy to now even the stuff we see everything we're made of isn't even the majority of it that's correct so we know something's out there that's right and what we uh, don't know exactly is uh, what it is the latest observations and models of the uh, universe uh, basically say that it can't be any of the particles we know about the particles that we are made of mostly protons neutrons electrons none of those uh, can be the dark matter based on uh, this measurement I, I mentioned with big bang nucleosynthesis so it can't be just dark clouds that we can't see that's correct these theories basically account for um, they don't take into account whether we can see it or not. They just say there can't be that much of this material in the universe from the measurements of the Big Bang. It's, it's some material that doesn't interact with light. That's right. I assume. Could it not be stuff out there, but laws of gravity just differ at large scales or for massive objects? You know, there is that. There are some theories along that lines, and uh, sometimes they do fit. The uh, some of the data better than the dark matter hypothesis. The Mond theory, I believe, that's it's right. called modified um, Newtonian dynamics. That's correct, and that actually uh, can uh, fit the rotation curve data better than the dark matter hypothesis. However, it can't fit the other experiments that we have uh, evidence of. The element distribution from the Big Bang, etc. That and the uh, the uh, large scale structure of the universe. That's correct. So we know it's something's out there. Right. Uh, how do we go about? detecting it other than just from these rotational curves? How do we actually find a piece of dark matter? There are a number of different uh, methods, and people are doing all sorts, all of them. Uh, there's an indirect detection method uh, because uh, the dark matter particles are thought to be their own antiparticle, and if they annihilate in space, they release very high-energy photons. Uh, there is the uh, creation of dark matter uh, attempts where they could possibly make it at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, and then there's the direct detection efforts where you basically uh, take a target and you uh, look for a signal that would indicate that the dark matter has collided with it. And so you're involved with one of these direct detection That's, yes. projects. And so it's the Cryogenic Dark Matter Search, or the abbreviated CDMS. And it's a collaboration of uh, over 15 institutions and over 80 scientists. So... What does CDMS do? How is it going to detect some dark matter? The primary detection mode is by uh, looking for a recoil that happens when a uh, particle of dark matter, we call them a WIMP, weakly interacting massive particles. That's the leading uh, hypothesis for what the dark matter could there be. There were also machos too, but now the WIMPs have <laughs> taken the lead. That's the highest uh, probability. Um, and so we're looking for that to recoil off of a atomic nucleus, and the recoil energy of the nucleus is the signal we measure. So you're trying to measure a nucleus of an atom getting bounced off a piece of dark matter. That's correct. It's a very small signal. How do you measure that? <laughs> um, we take a germanium crystal. It's a semiconductor similar to silicon, and we have a very high-purity crystal uh, that is cooled down to nearly absolute zero, so that quiets down all the molecular vibrations that would normally be there. And we put it deep underground and shield it from lots of cosmic rays, uh, native radiation. And then we 
basically sit and wait. How big is this detector? Um, it's about uh, 15 kilograms. It's sort of uh, about 15 hockey pucks would be about the, the size. It's all cooled to near absolute zero, and it's instrumented with thermometers and electrodes so we can measure both the heat deposited from this interaction and the electric charge release. So where's the obvious place to bury 15 hockey pucks? <laughs> right now we're at the Sudan mine in uh, northern Minnesota. Uh, it's about a half mile underground, and we're actually building a new experiment or doing the research uh, technology development to build a larger experiment for the uh, Snow Lab, which is a underground mine deeper in uh, Canada. This is a large consortium. It is. Many scientists, many institutions. What is your part in it? Um, I basically am involved in the electronics chains that takes the signal from these detectors and amplifies it and then sends that signal up to room temperature where it can be digitized and recorded for people to analyze it. So it's the preamp. It's basically the preamp. That's right. Okay. Uh, you had a nice analogy of how the detection works. It's kind of like a... Um, if you have a crystal a glass and you uh, tap it very gently and it rings, and we're listening for that ring, and we have to get it out of a noisy environment. If we did try to do this in a football stadium, you wouldn't hear that ring. We have to quiet it down, get the spectators out, and uh, so that we can actually hear that very, very small signal. So you're trying to hear a ring made by one person in a crowd in a football stadium. Basically. Trying to cool them all down so they don't <laughs> make right. any noise. Exactly. So have there been any candidate detections? We have had two candidate events a few years ago. And what's very uh, interesting and sometimes frustrating is that th there weren't enough events to say that we could that we actually saw dark matter, but there were too many to say that we didn't see it either. So we're kind of on the fence now until the next results come in. So what's the future for CDMS? Uh, larger and deeper. <laughs> we look forward well, when you get some more detections we'll bring you back in and you can describe what dark matter looks like that would be fun thank you very much for coming into the show martin you're welcome we've been talking with dr martin huber about dark matter if you want to learn more about this topic he will be giving a talk at the denver cafe scientifique tonight his presentation is called closing in on dark matter if it's everywhere why haven't we found it yet the Café Sci is held at the Mercantile Room in the Wincoop Brewing Company on the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Lodo, Denver. It starts at 6.30 tonight, and the discussion ends around 8 p.m. It is free and open to the public. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Headlines contributed by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Toru Takamitsu and Yorgi Legeta. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>